If you're innovating, creating, or making a difference, this show is for you. Welcome to Over Coffee. I'm Dot Cannon. Here on Over Coffee, we talk with artists and innovators about the process of changing the world in terms of what they do. In VR, why the camera is placed somewhere is really important. And in this medium, which is so exciting, you have nowhere to hide. Another thing to keep in mind, especially with animation, is the power of bringing somebody into a world. And I think that's something we do really well in Reimagined. And when I came across that folk tale, I knew I wanted to pull from this kind of impressionist world where if you put water on it, it would all just sort of go away or melt. If Misa is a little witch, what exactly does her broom look like and feel like? If Mayati is the goddess of the moon, what exactly does her crescent boomerangs look like? Right now, really just enjoying the ride that is reimagined and watching each volume sort of take on a life of its own. Filmmakers Julie Cavalier and Michaela Ternaski-Holland are co-creators of an exciting new animated VR anthology series. Julie and Michaela have reimagined lesser-known folk tales, mythology, and fables from all over the world in their anthology series called Reimagined. And they're empowering audiences by exploring concepts like overcoming fear and dealing with grief and anger through the lens of immersive storytelling. Michaela, who's an Emmy-winning XR director, and Julie, an award-winning writer, actor, director, and producer, received a Webby Award nomination for NISA, which is volume one of their Reimagined series earlier this year. Meanwhile, volume two, Mahal, will launch on MetaQuest devices on November 17th. Julie, Michaela, before we get to talking about Reimagined, a fantastic project if I've ever seen one in my life, how did each one of you first get inspired to use your talents in storytelling and performance, since I'm speaking to two highly talented performers here? Sure, I'll go first. My name is Michaela Trinasky-Holland, and I'm so excited to be on the podcast today. So Dot, thank you so much for having Julie and I. I actually started off my journey as a dancer and a performer. I was a professional dancer while going to school for journalism, and I took a leave of absence from my university degree and actually performed and danced on Disney Cruise Line. And while I was dancing and performing on Disney Cruise Line, I realized that there was a huge power to immersive interactive storytelling and just seeing the kind of agency you can give people and also seeing the ability to do really incredible guest service in order to create transformational experiences, which is a lot of what Disney, the root of Disney is really that. It is like education. It is entertainment and is very much based in like these narrative IPs. But at the root of Disney, it's about making people feel valuable. And so that really inspired me to go back to my journalism degree and really find immersive interactive mediums to play within. And that's where I discovered VR and AR and AI and all these other interesting kind of digital reality technologies, as I like to call them. And I've been working in this field ever since doing both nonfiction documentary work, but also now with the Reimagined series, some narrative work as well. So it's been It's been a really fun ride, and I'm grateful to be here as a performer, dancer, storyteller with no technology background, no developer, no engineering background, being able to work in this medium. Was there one landmark moment, Michaela, that you said, whoa, I have to be a part of this immersive medium, or was it gradual? That's a great question. I mean, I think for me, I had always grown up surrounded by immersive 
storytelling. Like I grew up going to Disneyland as a kid who grew up in California, grew up going to like children's museums. I grew up going to museums in general. And so I always really had an affinity towards these kind of immersive environments, but I didn't know that they would one day play a role in my career. And so I think for me, the moment specifically around VR, AR, I had just recently graduated from UC Irvine with my journalism degree. And I was volunteering at an event called A3Con, which is something that the Asian American Journalists Association puts on. And it's a highlighting, the day that highlights digital media or digital storytelling. And there was one panel about VR and AR, and it included like Vox and Snapchat. And it was in 2016, so very early days. And I remember being in the audience and they were talking about these new mediums of telling stories using these kinds of technologies. And I remember feeling hot and cold at the same time. I remember my blood pressure rose, like my head like was pounding. And I was like, I have to talk to these panelists. I have to know more about this medium. I have to like get involved. And so that was really for me the start of that very pinnacle moment of being exposed to this VR, AR, AI, digital reality medium that really set me on my path. And what a journey it has been since then. I can't wait to hear more. Julie, how about you? How did you first get inspired to be a performer and a storyteller? Ooh, (laughs) I think it's, I also, I came into, you know, immersive storytelling much later, but I started out always being interested. I grew up as a dancer, mainly tap. And so rhythm was very much a part of my life and musical instruments and things like that. And just growing up in New York and the proximity to theater and to storytelling and, you know, all of that played a huge influence for me. And then I I went to school for film and television production and kind of went down that line. And then I turned, I was working for this prolific producer for a while. And then I kind of just, the creative part of me sort of came calling. I sort of ditched everything. I auditioned for the actor studio kind of on a whim with no experience whatsoever. I got in and sort of just threw myself into that and living like La Vie Boheme and and like in the theater world of like the West Village in New York. Bounced around quite a bit after that, coast to coast and internationally working as an actor. I still work as an actor. And then slowly started taking improv classes and writing for improv. And then I had the opportunity to perform and write for the main stage at Upright Citizens Brigade. And then once again, kind of auditioned for this intensive at Columbia, which I got into all the while still working in development and production on that end. So, you know, really just no matter what surrounded by stories and then just before the pandemic, I kind of wandered into Tribeca's immersive section just because I had time to kill in between screenings with the production company I was working with at the time. And I was just so blown away by it. I had never seen anything like it before. Literally, someone had to put the headset on me because I was afraid I would break it. And I saw so much potential in it. And what it reminded me more than cinema, it really reminded me of theater in the round quite a bit, which is what I responded to. And then sort of had this idea, you know, and then we became connected to Michaela. And that's part of how our the reimagined journey started. But reimagined is my first experience in this, you know, immersive storytelling world. 
And then once the pandemic hit, sort of branching out on my own, forming my own production company, where I'm kind of taking all of these different sensibilities and combining them into one umbrella, not only to have a platform for my own stories, but to also give a platform to other creators, other stories who, you know, might be struggling through the bureaucracy of development. It's exciting to see the entertainment industry change in the way that you just outlined, because that's not the entertainment industry that I knew even 20 years ago. No, it is not. No, absolutely not. And it's changing. I used to go into networking meetings and things like that, these networking events, and say that I was, you know, a writer, director, actor, all of these things, producer. And people literally took me aside and they would say, you shouldn't say that it like diminishes you as a in the room like as a creative you know you're diminishing your power especially don't say actor and it was it couldn't have been dumber advice because it was like actually as an actor as a dancer as a performer that's how I learned to write like I can hear it right like rhythmic when I write everything has a certain rhythm and I can hear it and if it's not like in the pocket I might not know why, but I know the scene's not working. Same thing as an actor, you know, you know, you approach a scene character first. Like it's, as a producer, as anything, there's no better for me, there's no better way to start than as a performer. So. Please tell me the story of Reimagined. How'd that come about? Well, I started, it was after this Tribeca festival, me having the opportunity to see the immersive section at Tribeca. And like I said, I was just so fascinated by it. And right away, I started to have this idea for a story, but I knew enough to know that I knew nothing. So I was asking colleagues if they knew anyone who worked, you know, in this medium, because I just wanted to know more. And through mutual contacts, I was connected to Michaela. Michaela and I sat down really what was supposed to be just for a coffee to like chat. I was about to go off to this Tribeca intensive, still working, heading up development for this production company in New York. So it was really just kind of this back burner idea that I had. And she was kind enough to meet. We were chatting and we hit it off and then decided to collaborate on it. And then the pandemic hit shortly after And we decided, okay, let's put all our energy in this because it can be remote. And then as we developed it, we literally went out of pocket to do concept art. And this, you know, what became Reimagine originally just was Nisa, the idea for this story of Nisa. And then we spoke to other colleagues. We started to get a temperature for the market. And we were advised that a series would be best. You know, that's what we was looking for. And we're like, well, this could be a series. And we sort of adapted that way. Michaela decided that she wanted to direct volume two of the series. We decided to bring in a guest director for volume three. We sort of packaged that as an anthology series. We were connected to Meta, especially the, you know, Quill by Smooth Step division of Meta. And they were really excited for it. And we sort of were off to the races from there. It's been a really, really intense, but creatively fulfilling experience overall. Michaela, what do you remember best from the early days of working on NISA? What would be, if you had to pick out one moment, what was that experience like? Well, I remember it was the pandemic. 
it was sort of something Julie and I were like, oh yeah, this sounds fun. Like, let's do it. And we were both like crazy New Yorker, like living 20 different lives. And we would kind of meet up and kind of talk about it here and there. And it was really Julie, all Julie, like to write the first round of the script on Nisa. And I was really just there to give us the big intros to people in VR and have some people advise us. So it was really truly like a director producer role at the beginning. And then once the pandemic hit, everyone had a little more time on their hands. Julie and I really kind of got in the weeds. And I remember during the pandemic, we were doing things like paying one of my friends, Michael Milner, out of pocket to just put together some early, early 3D quill designs for Nisa and the monster. And it's just so funny to see those early designs compared to what we have now. It's like night and day, but like even just those early designs that we pitched to Meta were really like, I think a big part of why Meta saw that Julie and I were serious about this and serious about quill. And I think another really fun memory of the early Nisa days is when we is when we realized that Meta was really serious about us. And this was like, after a year of the pandemic, 2020, we had finally gotten in contact with the right people at Meta in 2021. And I think both Julie and I were slowly coming out of not being as busy. And then it was like, oh no, Meta's serious about this. And it was at that point, Julie and I realized we were in like a multi-year marriage, as we call it. (laughs) Julie and I have literally been in a multi-year marriage since like 2020. It was like our engagement period, I would say, Julie. And then we got officially married in 2021. And now here we are in 2023, about to enter 2024, still still (laughs) truly married, like (laughs) dealing with the budget, dealing with our kids, which is like our production teams. And it's been a fun ride. But yeah, it's it's crazy to have that moment early on in Nisa being like, wow, this is actually going to happen. And just to wrap up this question, I have one last little memory. Julie and I, when we got our first ever coffee at Citizen M Hotel in the Lower East Side, we had never met. We literally got our first coffee. And Julie's first question, because this is so Julie, to be like, so what festival do you think this could even premiere at? Like something like like a VR film, like what like what festivals? Like obviously Tribeca, but like what other places? Because Julie also comes from like a distribution brain. So she's like, where can this be seen? Like, is this going to be worth it? And I literally had just heard Nisa's pitch, like a retelling of a Brothers Grimm fairy tale. And I was like, oh, this would be perfect for Venice. And I think Julie's brain dropped. She was like, Venice? Like, no, no. Like, I'm pretty sure she thought I was crazy. And I was like, no, no, this 100% is going to premiere at Venice. If we can make <laughs> if we can make this project happen, Venice would take this in a heartbeat. And that was like 2019, Julie? Yeah, 2019. Yeah. yeah. 2019. And three years later, three years later, it needs to premiere at Venice 2022. Wow. Yeah, that's 100%. Yeah, that's very funny. I forgot about that. Yeah, that's 100% true. Because, yeah, I when we sat down, it was just like, okay, it was as creative and yeah, and it's totally my brain. It's creative and strategic at the same time. And I was like, oh, this chick's crazy. All right. I mean, listen, let's go. Like, let's go. Why not? Right. Like, we'll jump. What a place to fall. Like, <laughs> cool. But yeah. And I think for Michaela and I, what was interesting as this project evolved was the more people we were talking to, we saw their expression change as we were doing the pitch. And we were like, oh, there's something here. Like we knew there was something there. But when we started taking it to market and chatting with people and all of that, and even with Meta, 
our pitch meeting was an hour and we ran, what was it like 15 minutes over before they realized they had like another meeting. We were like, Oh, there's something here. Like we're not crazy. And we put a like, listen, we put a ton of work into it. And as Michaela said, like our own money, our own time, our own energy in order to get the series off the ground, because we really believed in it so deeply. And yeah. And then went off and like got hitched, (laughs) you know, professionally and doing it ever since. So it's been great. It's been great. What would each of you give as guidance to filmmakers who are doing what you're doing, who are creating a VR animated experience? What do you have to remember about writing, directing, producing, as opposed to if you were just doing a standard film? I think for me, again, like if you're directing, I think it goes back for me into that theater in the round mentality that you are working in a 360 space and that has to be utilized. And if you are cutting, that has to be really motivated. You know, you see sometimes people are, you know, I call it like hat on a hat syndrome, like people are cutting for the flourish of the cut or they're doing these things, which in film you could sort of get away with sometimes, but in VR, you know, you're very quickly nauseous. And why the camera is placed somewhere is really important in terms of, and, you know, and you see with these pieces, Nisa and Mahal and then, you know, our volume three piece where we're putting the camera is extremely precise in terms of what we want, you know, our audience to feel, think, you know, anticipate, not anticipate in that moment. And so I think you have in this medium, which is so exciting, you have nowhere to hide. Like it really has to be very precise. That's the number one thing that comes to my mind. It sounds both fun and challenging. How about for you, Michaela? I think Julie did a really good job articulating the camera and the storytelling and even like the choreography of it since she and I both have dance backgrounds. I think another thing to keep in mind, especially with animation, is the power of bringing somebody into a world. And I think that's something we do really well and reimagined is like each of our worlds, because it's an anthology series, feels really bespoke and really detail oriented and really thoughtful based on our character, based on our art style, based on our retelling and I think that that what is really what makes reimagine unique like I think we've seen a lot of series that really especially in the VR world that delve into the same universe over and over again and those are really incredible but what reimagine does so specifically is like very similar like a love death and robots anthology series or even more like a black mirror anthology series which isn't necessarily animated but is the same kind of premise of an anthology series is like we really focus on the world building of like, if Nisa is a little witch, what exactly does her broom look like and feel like? If Mayati is the goddess of the moon, what exactly does her crescent boomerangs look like? Do they have little Babayan runes on them, which is like a kind of lost language in the Philippine culture that's being revitalized right now, right? Like, and that's the beauty of animation. I think with VR, we tend to get really stuck in this photorealism kind of like space. And I've worked a lot in photoreal experiences and I think they're beautiful and they have a specific purpose for a specific type of story. But when you're thinking about VR animation specifically, art style and visual design is really one of your biggest items to leverage in making a story that feels all-encompassing, in making a story that feels all-inspiring, and in making a story that feels really engaging. 
I really do love the way that you brought me in, Janisa, as your viewer. I put on the headset. I felt like I was flying in on a broomstick over this enchanting village. How did you come to choose that particular Brothers Grimm fairy tale to be oh. reimagining? Yes. So a few things. The way I found that tale was really by accident. I mean, there's no... I could spin a story for you, Dot, but it wouldn't be true. I came about it literally because I was just sort of flipping through an anthology, you know, book of like different folk tales and things like that. And I saw the title, you know, and it was the tale of the boy that went forth to learn what fear was. And I automatically just thought of fear conditioning and self-actualization just from the title. And then I read the story, and I don't know if you're familiar with the story, Dot, but it's not particularly fleshed out. So, you know, it left a lot to be desired for me from like a writing standpoint in order to do like a one-to-one translation of it. But what it provided for me was a launch pad. And similarly, the year before, I was in France, and I was at this, you know, small witch museum in the center of France. And learning about, you know, just the witch trials that took place there, first of all, and also why at a certain age they started persecuting witches. And it was because as of like this tween age, they felt that women were coming into their power and that needed to be controlled and suppressed. And where they put this assignment of witchcraft on it, it actually, there is like a basis in terms of, you know, women are more in touch with nature, you know, female intuition, all of these things. And then I started just researching a ton about it. And when I came across that folk tale, my brain started to wander and just the connection was made. And so it slowly, and I knew I wanted it to feel abstract. I knew I wanted to pull from this kind of impressionist world where if you put water on it, it would all just sort of go away or melt or blend into something else. Like there's a liquidity to it, which I wanted it to have, and a painterly vibe, which worked very well for the quill medium, as it turned out. And as she goes in her journey, just this expressionistic turn, both in music, in sound, visually, and all of that, as we bring in you know, these elements of fear. And at the end, there's a reconciliation where we're not casting out the shadows. We're actually bringing these diffracted shadows into the piece and she's absorbing it. It's now a part of her. So that's how that all sort of came to be. But that came early on as well in like the development process. What I thought was fun was when you go to the original story, the main character is kind of an anti-hero. You've replaced the anti-hero with a very clever, very feisty young witch. And I'm curious, you call her mother Marmy. Is that a nod to Louisa May Alcott? What do you think? <laughs> yes, I think so. That was probably a book that you loved very much as a child. I'm going to guess that. It is. And it was something just that Earth, that Mother Earth, the character themselves. I mean, all of the names have significance. Nisa in some languages means the beginning, in some languages means the end. So that was a significant, I knew very early on, I wanted her name to be Nisa. I knew early on, I wanted the mother's name to be Marmee. It was just what came, again, it was a very impulsive sort of 
very instinctive sort of assignment of names and things like that. Before we leave this, what in the world does Tiemenkag mean? The snake's name. It's the sum of all fear is Tiemenkag. Of course, I mangled the pronunciation. I saw that and I thought, I wonder what language that is and I wonder what it ever means. Michaela, what about the second one? Mahal, you wrote and directed this particular episode. Please tell me about this one. Yeah. So Mahal is inspired by Philippine mythology. I'm a Filipino-American and I came out as queer to my family and they very Christian, very Catholic, were very taken aback. And so I decided to go on a journey of my own to kind of find indigenous culture and belief systems in the Philippines to see if the Philippines itself had been a little more inclusive to queerness. And I was really pleased and surprised to find not just my history of indigenous culture, but also, you know, these incredible characters to fall into. And It really set me on a journey to learn about colonialism of the Philippines and the imperialism of the Philippines. The word Philippines is actually named after King Philip. The country is an archipelago of over 700 islands that were never meant to be a country. They were never meant to be like a holistic kind of environment. And so what you find is you find over like 100 indigenous tribes and cultures with all different belief systems, whether they were inspired by people they came in contact with through trade, like like Hindu kind of religion or Chinese inspired religion, or if they were very isolated, they had sort of their own belief systems. And so the characters I felt most connected to were from the Tagalog tribe. The Tagalog tribe believed in gods that were anthropomorphic. So gods that looked and sounded like humans, very similar to the Roman and Greek gods that I learned growing up as a mythology nerd. And so this pantheon of gods and goddesses were just so rich and I just was like, wow, it's like they're calling my name. Like they're asking me to make a story about them one day. And so when Julie and I decided that Reimagined was going to be a series and Julie was like, well, what should we do for volume two? I told Julie, well, I would love to do a Philippine mythology volume. And that seemed right for me to direct who, as someone who also has a creative background. And it's funny because Julie and I laugh that each of our volumes have had kind of their uh uh-oh moments. So they're like, oh, crap, is this going to happen moment? Are we going to pull this off moment? And for me, that moment happened in Mahal during the script because I've never actually written a narrative script. I come from a nonfiction journalism background. And I have to give major props to Julie and my writer, my co-writer, Eleanor Thibault, who both kind of came in and really helped support me through that oh, crap moment because I had really a hard time finding the theme of the story. I had thought at the beginning I was set out to tell a story about compromise between Apalaki and Mayadi, the goddess of the sun and the goddess of the moon. And very quickly Meta was like, this isn't deep enough. This doesn't feel authentic. Like, what can you do? And so the beauty of Mahal is that it's a love letter to my parents. It's a love letter to my mother, who's Filipino. And it's a love letter to my father, who's not Filipino, but died in a car accident when I was very young, because what we settled on as the theme of Mahal is this theme around grief and losing your father. And so our pantheon of gods and goddesses, who are all brothers and sisters, are dealing with the loss of their creator, God, father, God, Batala. And so that really, once we tapped into my grief story, the script kind of really came to life and fell into place. And From there, you know, it was just beautiful time creating. I always like to say for Mahal, the camera's a little more athletic. So we really tried to do some more 
athletic things with the camera, really moving it around in ways that I haven't seen a lot of people do in the VR medium. And I really just wanted to give homage to, you know, the Philippine culture as much as I could, as well as to my mother and my father. So Mahal is a very personal little piece of content that I have had the pleasure to bring to life. I had wondered how you brought us into Mahal until you said that. What about the look of Mahal? It's all really different. What's the mental image you had as you were designing this? Yeah, that's a great question. Mahal is island clean is what my team and I like to call it. It really doesn't have a specific focus on a a specific art style. What we really went for is the world building. So our villagers look very blocky and they're actually animated in a very specific style. They're animated a little slower and a little less fluid because we want them to feel like dolls. We wanted them to feel like these kind of like small toy-like characters compared to our deities who have this more lean, clean, like fluid kind of look to them and they're also animated a little more fluidly and so there's a very distinct animation style within our project there's a very distinct look from the village to the celestial realm but overall island clean like it's a very pleasurable world to fall into it's a very beautiful the colors are very vibrant like lots of beige and browns and blues as you would think of when you think of like a tropical island and you know, my team will always say like, yeah, it feels like we're making a Disney or a Pixar film. But for me, that was my big inspiration growing up is watching those kinds of films. And so I think it makes sense that that's what kind of came out of me because it's such a deeply personal film about my childhood and about my childhood struggles and about, you know, my ancestry. And so it makes sense to me that the film almost has some of that Disney Pixar nostalgia embedded in it with the stylization. It's a very vibrant, clean, beautiful, aesthetically pleasing world. It sounds like it coincides with a phrase that you've coined. I was reading an article about you prior to our conversation, and you came up with the phrase compassionate storytelling. It seems that you've created this very clean world where the characters toy-like and vibrant colors, and it seems like that would be evoking that feeling in any of your viewers. Yes. I think in compassionate storytelling really also deals with the kind of people we work with in the project and how we treat people who are working on the project as well. And so one other thing that was really special for me working on Mahal is that I got to work with a Filipina score composer, Teresa Barazzo. She and I have worked together before on my project, Lithau. But also I got to hire all Filipino or Filipino-American voiceover actors. And I think that was really special for them because for all of them across the board, this was the first time they got to portray someone that is explicitly Filipino in a narrative animated project that's also explicitly a Filipino god or goddess or a spiritual advisor. And that was really special for them, I think, too, because they were like, wow, someone made a role, that's a dream role I have. And it was really cool to watch them portray and express those dream roles in their performances. And there is a third in the works right now. What can you tell me about this one? Or can you? Um, Yeah, I mean, a little. So volume three is based, is inspired by, on a Southern Nigerian fable. And we have our lead director, Melissa Joyner, who's come in to sort of helm the creative on it. And Melissa is also an amazing creative and frequent collaborator of mine. We met at the Actors Studio. She's also a former mentee of Dr. Maya Angelou. So you'll see a lot of that in the storytelling, a lot of this very poetic sensibility. 
a lot of play with sound and rhythm and tone and things like that, as well as playing with dimensionality. She's also been inspired by Romare Bearden, you know, who kind of has this very collage 2D aesthetic to him. So, and it's, you know, it thematically, it's dealing with the idea of code switching in young girls. And we're hoping to bring that to the world in 2024. Here's how you can experience Reimagined. If you are interested in checking out Nisa, it is available on the Oculus Media Store for free. You can download the VR animation app and search there for Nisa. We also publish three pieces of supplemental content with every single piece of quill work. So if you're interested in seeing the behind the scenes of how certain scenes are made, if you're interested in meeting and learning a little more about the characters, if you're interested in kind of diving into some of the environments that you see in the project, definitely check out not only Nisa, but those supplemental pieces as well. We are easy to find. Reimagined VR is really our handle across everything, Instagram, Twitter, slash X. And that's also our email. So reimaginedvr at gmail.com. And you can definitely follow our socials just to stay in touch with everything happening. We have a link tree in our Instagram bio that we update with all of our screenings that are being announced, as well as any new up-to-date news that we're being kind of showing or we're sharing. So that's probably the best way to stay the most up-to-date with what's happening is through our socials, through our link tree. And then, of course, if you want to get in touch, you can always email us. Reimagine VR. Julie, I didn't hear any kind of a link from you. Is there anything else that you would like people to know about social media, about following you as an actor, writer, anything of that nature? I mean, feel free to follow me. (laughs) You know, I'd love to stay in touch with whoever's listening. Feel free to let us know what you think about the Reimagine series. I always love to discuss the series and the separate volumes with anyone who's interested. Hopefully also very soon we'll be able to divulge a little bit more about volume three. But again, we're also under a bit of an embargo there as well. On my personal, if you're across platforms, my handle is Julie B. Cavalier. Don't forget that middle initial because I came to the social media party late. (laughs) So it's in there. And yeah, you know, a couple of another project coming up late 2023, but again, can't say too much yet because we're still figuring, getting our act together right now, really just enjoying the ride that is reimagined and watching each volume sort of take on a life of its own and, you know, getting to enjoy all of the hard work that Michaela and I have put into this series. It's really such a beast, but so incredibly rewarding. What about the beast aspect of this? What would you caution anybody who's getting into doing what you're doing? Is there something like, oh no, why did I get into this? But then you go on and do it anyway. You better be able to think on your feet, I think. (laughs) You better really be very good at creative problem solving, I would say. But I think that goes with production in general. You know, like Michaela said, each volume has had sort of its own, like, uh oh, are we going to make it moment? And I think because Michaela and I are in our own ways so incredibly stubborn that we were just like, we're going to see this through. We put too much into it, and this project deserves, you know, deserves the very best. And what we're doing in this way, you haven't really seen, especially with Quill. You know, like these camera moves, you know, in Nisa that had never been done before in Mahal, 
you know, the, the camera treatment in Mahal, you had never seen in these quill pieces. So we're really just sort of pushing the limit of what this platform can do. And as a result, you know, you're, you're, you're slamming into walls sometimes, and you know, and so you better be able to adapt and think on your feet. And Michaela, what would you say about the beast aspect of what you're doing? Well, I would say the beauty of working in Quill is that you're truly working with artists. Unlike working in like a game engine environment, especially when you're building interactivity, you're often working with developers and engineers. And those production timelines tend to be very lengthy, especially if you're trying to innovate on something that has never been done before in a game engine environment or export a certain level of quality of experiences. The beauty of working in Quill is you're truly working with artists. Like Quill is a very accessible platform. You literally just need to be able to 3D model, 3D paint, and 3D animate. And really, the Quill aspect is like we're using old workflows like Disney used to, where they would hand paint every character, every frame. We're doing that just in a 3D environment and hand animate like stop motion style. And so the beauty of that is like I think we're working with a really collaborative creative team. And the other point that gets a little sticky is that what can Quill do? Like Quill also is a platform that is no longer in development. So they're not improving upon that platform. It's really like kind of a time capsule of a platform that's incredibly accessible for artists and people looking to get into VR. But on the other hand, that also there's a limited amount of talent that can work in this medium of Quill because not a lot of people are working in it as an industry standard. So like, I think there's a lot of things that Julie and I, very similar to what Julie was saying, where you're like, oh, you have to be really good at problem solving. But specific to the production workflow of Quill, it's like, there's only so many people who have done Quill. I think at this point, Julie and I laugh, we've probably worked with everybody in the Quill industry or everybody in the Quill industry we've reached out to to be able to say, will you come work with us on this project? They all know who we are. <laughs> They're probably all sick of hearing from us. But the other piece of that puzzle too is like, because there's some very, very unique bugs with Quill, we're constantly having to figure out workarounds. So like, for example, with volume three, one of our producers and our art directors was literally like, Quill just crashed nine times last night when I was trying to animate this one scene, right? So there are just some of these like stickier moments, but the beauty of what you can do with Quill and how quickly you can do it with Quill and how beautifully you can do it with Quill, I think, is truly one of our favorite parts of working on this project. It's not, it's very unsimilar to your traditional interactive room scale game engine VR development kind of production pipeline and so much more aligned with like the traditional narrative animation pipeline, which has been just, it's just really creatively fulfilling. Now, Quill, for anybody that hasn't heard of this before, do I understand correctly, this is a free software platform that allows you to draw with your hands? Is that correct? Yeah, so it's very similar to Google Tilt Brush, where it is a 3D painting software. But what Quill really was built for, it was built as a mechanism or tool to create the project Dear Angelica. And once they had created the product to create Dear Angelica, which is one of the most original prolific Quill pieces, that was created by Oculus Story Studio back when they were alive and kicking, they decided to make it an open source platform for other artists and animators to get into the VR medium very easily and very quickly. And a lot of our animators love working with Quill because it's a real-time engine machine. Like, unlike working in like a Blender or a Maya where you're painstakingly like animating frame by frame and moment by moment, and then you have to wait for the whole thing to like render and you can't really see it. Like, 
Quill just real time renders. So you move an arm, the arm moves right away. You blink an eye, the eye blinks right away. It's a really, from what I understand, because again, I don't have an animation background, but what I understand from my team is like, it's a very fulfilling platform for them as animators. Anyone hearing this that is into the art aspect of this is going to want to check out Quill. Final question is the signature question for my podcast. If people could only get one thing from you about innovation, creativity, and making a difference, what do you want them to take away from your work with Reimagined, the series, or anything else that you're doing? The vision for Reimagined was to carve out a really unique space for female voices, like female directors, female writers, female producers. And I think there's one thing to take away is that like, if you have a vision, if you have an idea, if you have a goal or a desire or a wish, it's okay to like ask for it because you never know what's going to happen. I don't think when Julie and I had our first coffee at Citizen M Hotel in 2019, either of us realized we were going to get a trilogy fully funded by Meta of VR animation where we were able to tell three totally different stories, empower three totally different female directors, her and myself being included, and also premiere those projects at really renowned festivals like Venice and like Tribeca and like South by Southwest. So yeah, I think it's it's definitely a call to believe in yourself, believe in your vision, and you never know what will happen. It might not be the exact vision you had at the beginning. It's probably going to be better. And how about you, Julie? Yeah, I think Michaela put it beautifully. I would also say that for us in this reimagined journey, it's really been about having the creative lead, you know, everything we've done has been in service of the creative. And I think that's been really important and has led us to really surprising places as well within each volume and with the series overall. I think there's also something to be said, as Michaela mentioned earlier, she does not have a tech background. I don't have a tech background. There's something in, there's something I've found really inspiring in just a group of you know, or Michaela and I, you know, just coming together as creatives and figuring it out because I had certainly never worked with Quill. Michaela at this point had a VR background, but not specific to Quill. And so just sort of jumping in, getting your hands dirty and being committed to the project and figuring it out as you go along. I think too many times creatives are, you know, intimidated by by tech or by, you know, if they don't have an editing background or they've never directed before, they've never written before, you know, you've never done these things and you don't really, you know, you might not be able to unless you kind of just jump in full speed. Michaela, Julie, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. You and I have been listening to Julie Cavalier, president of Very Cavalier Productions, and to Michaela Chernasky-Holland, experiential VR, AR, and metaverse creator and consultant. Julie and Michaela are the co-creators of the Reimagined Animated VR series. Volume 2 of the Reimagined series, Mahal, is an official selection of the 2023 Tribeca Film Festival and will launch on MetaQuest on November 17th. Meanwhile, be sure you check out Volume 1, Nisa on MetaQuest. It is a great story. And get updates on future episodes of Reimagined at reimaginedvr.com and by following them on their social media at reimaginedvr. And that concludes this edition of Over Coffee. Thank you for listening. 
Listen to more Over Coffee podcasts at twomavericks.com. That's two, T-W-O, Mavericks, M-A-V-E-R-I-X. Be sure you subscribe. It's free by clicking the link on our website. Our music is royalty-free production music provided by Pond5 at pond5.com. I'm Dot Cannon. Here's wishing you a cappuccino day.